Well, uh, if, you've, if you've been around for the last few weeks, I've begun every message by saying, well, guys, we've got a lot of work to do, and today's no exception. We just have a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going we're gonna to kind of pick up where we left off. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, I always want to give you a heads up on where to be. Uh, I'm going to briefly mention Mark, but if you want to kind of get a head start on the bulk of today, uh, I'm going to be in the book of Psalms. I'm going to start in Psalm 6, and we'll bounce around a lot in, in Psalms. And so that'll give you a chance to find that. The book of Psalms is, if, if you have your paper. Bible in front of you, just kind of open it up to dead middle, and you're within one book of the book of Psalms. I mean, it's right, it's right there. It's pretty easy to, to track down. And it's the biggest book of the Bible. So if you just kind of like thumb through the Bible, you'll probably see the word Psalms. Uh, we, we've been working through this series called No Compartments because uh, if you're like me, uh, I don't like hypocrites. Anybody like a big fan of the hypocrites? You're like, hey, those are my people. I like hanging out with them. No, no, it's, it's a word that is never used to be like, that's my tribe. It's always a word used to describe people that you're disagreeing with. So I like you, uh, and I do like you, but uh, it's similar to you. Uh, I don't like hypocrites. But then if I'm honest with, you and I'm honest with myself. Sometimes I look in the mirror and my actions don't match my beliefs. And I excuse that and I say, oh, it was just a lapse of judgment. Oh, it's just stress this time. But there's a word for someone whose actions don't match their beliefs. And that word is hypocrite. And so if I'm honest with you, I don't like hypocrites, but when I look in the mirror, I see one often. I see a hypocrite that believes these truths, but in certain situations, I'm tempted to act in a way that is contrary to those truths. And so how does that happen? How do we get in that position? This entire series is exploring why is it that we are comfortable having the version of us that we bring to church and let it be a completely different version than the person that we bring to work tomorrow morning, Monday morning. Like those two people should be the same person and we've become comfortable with the idea that I have a church compartment and I'll live in my church compartment and I have my, my work compartment and I have when I'm hanging out with my bros compartment and I have when I'm like, uh, you know, helping my kids soccer team compartment. Like some reason uh, we've become comfortable with these compartments, but there's a word for people who live in compartments and get caught. And that word is hypocrite. And so we're trying to solve for that. Uh, and we see that, that Jesus is, when he's cornered in the book of Mark and it's reflected also in Matthew and Luke, everybody tries to trap Jesus, uh, they corner him and said, hey, Jesus, I bet you can't tell us the most important thing. And he gives what we now call the great commandment. Uh, to, to summarize the great commandment, it's to love God and to love people. And we spent several weeks talking about the people side, but we've spent the last four weeks now looking at this loving God side. Like, Jesus gave very specific examples, very specific words of how we should do that. And we will add, and something we said at the beginning, is that when Jesus said this phrase, he he wasn't inventing a new way of loving God. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting something Moses wrote down. And so what we see is that Jesus sees that all the way back in the Old Testament, there was an ancient way of loving God that is still applicable to his people and is therefore still applicable to us. He's quoting a version uh, uh, of the Shema out of Deuteronomy. And so um, all that is to say, let's look, at, let's look at the words of Jesus in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 29. The people have come to him, say, I bet you can't tell me the most important thing is Jesus says, I, I got you. Here's what it is. Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
Listen, Israel, God is just one. He doesn't live in compartments. There's no hypocrisy with God. He's also monotheistic. You don't need your, your pantheon of gods to worship, which is super helpful for me. I just want to learn about the one God. I don't need the 50 gods to cover all my bases. So that's nice. Uh, but not only is he one God in the monotheistic sense, but he's, he's never changing. Uh, the God that you worship right now has the same personality that he had when John the Baptist was praying to him, has the same personality that he had when David was praying to him. He's the same God. In Scripture, says that he doesn't change. There is, in fact, no shadow of changing in our God. There's no hint that he's going to change his mind on things. He, he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is one God, and then we're to love him as one with our mind, with our soul, with our strength, with our, with our heart. And so we've looked at these words. We've looked at mind first. How do you love the Lord your God with your mind? We looked at heart next. That was the last week. And this week I want to look at this word, uh, soul. To love God with your soul. That sounds, that sounds really religious, doesn't it? Like anytime you add the word soul, uh, it's super religious sounding. Uh, in fact, uh, most of us think of the soul as like the non-material version of us inside of us. So there's our body, and then you say like inside of me is alive is the soul, and, and when I die, it's my soul that goes to heaven. That's, that's usually kind of what we talk about, but that understanding of the word soul is not found in the Bible, okay? The soul, the word soul in the Bible is not talking about your spirit. That's a separate thing. We get that theology from Tom and Jerry and other cartoons when like Wiley Coyote gets hit with the anvil and something leaves his body, we point to it, it's like, oh, Wiley Coyote's soul has left him. But that's not, that's not biblical understanding of the word soul. What, what is the soul? Because, because if you're going to love the Lord your God with the immaterial parts of your body, you have no control over that. That makes Jesus' commandment like almost meaningless. Like, how do you, how do, you do that? Uh, but you do have control over your soul. What is the soul? The Greek word for the word soul is pasuke. You want to say pasuke? Pasuke. It's, it sounds very different in, in Greek when you pronounce it with the P, but in English, we use this word all the time, but we leave the P silent. It's still written there, but it's in words like psyche. Can you see the word psyche in the spelling of that? You change the U to a Y, very common in language. Psyche, psychology, psychological disorder. The, the word pasuke, soul, is the same root word of all of our psychological disciplines in our uh, world. In fact, if you look at the word soul, as it's used in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see that the word soul has to deal with life, and it's used in two different ways. Um, there's just general, like, counting people. Uh, if a ship goes down in the middle of the ocean uh, and they're giving a report, they'll say there were 492 souls on board. You know that? Uh, you see that in Scripture, uh, sometimes when they're enumerating groups of people. Uh, when the Word of God is first spoke after Pentecost, there came that day 3,000 souls who believed. Is, is the word in Acts chapter 2. So use the, in terms of like counting numbers of life, but it's also used as like a, a depth of life. When, when the book of Psalms talks about his soul aching, he's talking about the life is being like ripped away from me. We use it that way too today. And we say, we say uh, to those of us who have wrestled with depression, if you've gone down that road once or twice, you say, my, uh, it's, like, it's like I have no life left in me. I'm just, I'm dragging down. See, we understand that word to mean that thing, uh, but, but we, don't, we don't think about it uh, all the time. The word soul means life. It means passions and emotions. The way the Greek mind 
mind would think about this? This is where all of your, your sadness lives, is in your soul, all of your happiness. Uh, you remember that moment when you fell in love for the first time, you were like in middle school or something, and you knew you were going to marry that girl, you were going to marry that guy, and those butterflies like swelled up in your tummy? The, the, the biblical understanding of that, that, there's something tickling your soul. Like The, the butterflies live in your soul. That's, that's where emotions are. When you're sad and you're looking out and you're remembering this thing that causes you great grief, do you know where grief lives in the biblical mind? It lives in the soul. You see, these are all matters of the soul. We would, we would consider this uh, like the closest kind of English understanding. If you've studied you know, psychology things, this is going to be like your, um, your subconscious mind. It's, it's all the pieces of you that you don't get to choose that are there, um, but they're there. You don't choose when you're angry and you don't choose when you're sad, but they happen all the same and we have to address that. This is the seat of stress. This is the seat of grief. This is the seat of anxiety. When you suffer, what part of your, your makeup, what part of how you've been created in God, what part of it is feeling the suffering? It is your soul. That's, that's what aches inside of you. If you've ever experienced uh, trauma or know that word, we'll talk about it in a moment, what is it affecting more than anything? It affects your mind some, it affects your heart some, but it's the soul that feels this. And so when, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your soul, he's admitting a couple of things that are very foreign to most American Christians. You have emotions. You have feelings. To pretend that you don't is to lie to God about what you're going through. The number of Christians who are angry, I am, I am very angry right now. Oh, well, you should tell God about it. I can't. I, I'm not supposed to be angry. Okay, but you have a soul. There's a reason you feel sadness. There's a reason you feel happiness. There's a reason that that joy is sitting there. And we don't, we don't pretend that we don't. And so what I'm going to make the argument for is that if we're going to love God with our soul, followers of Jesus, we must, listen, this is an optional, we must develop a rich theology of suffering. We must develop a rich theology of suffering and processing good and bad experiences. I don't know which person is responsible for teaching this to the church or why it sunk in so well, but I can guarantee you somewhere along the way, me coming up, I learned that I'm supposed to take all my emotions, all my fears, all my sadness, all my anger, all the negative things about me and, and just push them to this compartment over here because I can't bring that compartment with me to church, right? I've got to come to church with my happiness and my joy and praise God for the rainbows and everything. And all the while, I am wrestling with deep, dark depression. This isn't hypothetical. When I was going through my deepest versions of depression, I would pretend everything was okay. And I believed that's what God wanted for me. But when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your soul, you come to him with your real self, emotions and all. We must, as followers of Jesus, develop a rich theology of understanding our suffering, understanding our good experiences, and understanding our bad experiences. And if we choose not to, it would be like driving a car with a blindfold on. It's possible to get where you're going, but it's going to cause a lot of damage along the way. I, to this day, I don't understand why the drive through ATM has Braille on it. I don't, I don't know, like, who, who it is, what, what, what the, maybe, maybe like you pull up and you let somebody in the passenger seat. I don't understand it. But, but the idea of just driving, can you get home today if I blindfold you? Eventually, you're going to hit some stuff along the way. And we as Christians, when we walk through life ignoring the emotions, ignoring the, the, the fear, the, the, the good and the bad, we're, we're walking, uh, through life with a blindfold on. 
We're going to talk a little bit about trauma, uh, just in general, and I thought it would be good to get a good definition of what trauma is. There are things in this world that are traumatic, uh, and so maybe maybe we should have a good understanding of what that is. The American uh, Psychological Association, or if I want to pronounce it with the Greek, the American Psychological Association, uh, says this about trauma. Trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. Trauma, therefore, by the way, is not the terrible event. It's the emotional response to the terrible event. It's how you feel. It's what you're dealing with. It's all the the stuff in your soul. Trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. I wonder if anybody here has experienced trauma and they're like, yeah, I denied it for a while. I didn't want to believe that that happened. Longer term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches and nausea. Uh, this, this, is, this is what trauma is. Have we ever uh, experienced a trauma? Uh, the answer is yes. It doesn't matter how old you are in this room. Um, I'm, I'm convicted of this, that are uh, convinced rather that it's impossible to make it from birth to grave without experiencing some trauma. It seems to be the, the human condition, but better than that, better than just trying to prove to each one of you that you're going to experience some trauma. We live in Southeast Texas. I don't have to convince you that COVID was real. I don't have to convince you that hurricanes knocked you out of your house. I don't have to convince you that TPC blew up and you didn't know when the next explosion was going to happen. I don't have to convince you that another hurricane came and knocked you out of your house. We as a society have experienced extremely negative events and we've all had emotional responses to it. Now, most of us, usually the men in the room, uh, we have taught ourselves and we believed we don't show any emotion. We're going to deal with it later. I'm going to compartmentalize that and I'm just going to work. And the, the truth is, is that if we don't face the emotions, we carry all that baggage with us. So um, my, my family, we, we, we flooded twice in two different hurricanes. First hurricane completely knocked me off balance. Uh, I, I had to, like one, it took me days to even admit that we flooded. Don't ask. It was just like, it was hard for me to even admit that. And then it was like days later for me to start ripping the carpet out. I was, I was like a week into it. And I vowed then a couple of things. One, I'm not going to accumulate so much junk. Like that, I don't know why I have all this junk. I threw away so much stuff I didn't care anything about. Why did I keep it to begin with? I vowed I would never accumulate junk. The next hurricane proved that that was a lie. I accumulated junk quite quickly uh, and believed it was the best thing to keep. And then, and then I ended up throwing it away. But the second, the second hurricane was a little different. I was prepared a little differently. Uh, I was prepared differently in one, because I've experienced it once before. Uh, but two, uh, I learned a little bit about my soul from the first time around. I learned that I'm not going to feel this right away. I will feel it later. I learned after the first hurricane that I'm, I'm going to tell myself that everything is fine for about six weeks. And then at the six week mark, when everybody else around me is healing and they seem to be getting on with life is whenever I got to go to sleep somewhere and I've got to get away. Um, after the second uh, hurricane, after the second flood, I, I get out of bed and I put my foot down. And I'm in an ankle deep of water and I immediately know I'm flooded and I feel nothing. I feel no sorrow. I feel no pain. I feel no anger. I know exactly what I must do. At three in the morning, I call a hotel. I book a hotel before any of you suckers fill it all up. I knew where to put my family. I knew where to get my stuff. I already called the insurance company and had everything in line at three in the morning. And I let my family sleep through the whole thing. I'm thinking to myself, there's no sense in waking them up. They might as well get rested. I felt nothing and I felt like I had to. 
And then I got after the business of working and doing the thing. And sure enough, just like I knew it would, six weeks later, I came to a grinding halt because I've been carrying for the last six weeks emotions and anger and fear and, and not being enough that maybe I'm not going to make it. I had to give that over to the Lord six weeks later. Have you experienced a trauma? And has the church taught you in that process that you're not supposed to feel any of these things and that God doesn't want you to bring those things to him? Uh, that's That would be a lie. You were created with a soul. Um, the book of Psalms is really helpful in talking about the soul because like, it's not just my experience. It's not just my um, uh, opinion. Someone said that the book of Psalms has a sigh, or uh, uh, it, it has a psalm for every sigh. I like that phrase, a psalm for every sigh. Have you ever had a feeling or an emotion? You're just like, oh. I don't know what that one means, but there's a psalm for it, okay? Uh, and then you have this other one, you're like, ah. I don't know which one that one is, but there's a psalm for that. There is a psalm for every sigh. The, the authors of all the psalms, they deal so much with the soul. And I just want to build today a theology of suffering and dealing with negative experiences. Psalm chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 say this. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. What a, what a colorful word, languishing. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Have you ever been so sad that your bones ache? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what he's feeling right there. He says, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, long pause. How long? There, there's no end, like there's no completion of the idea, but everybody who's ever experienced a sorrow knows exactly that feeling. You're just praying like, God, save me, I'm languishing, but God, come on, how long? And it's just like it ends. He continues with other thoughts, but that's the end of that thought. There's this, there's this theology of suffering in there. Uh, a lot of uh, people know Psalm 23, you know, the, the Good Shepherd Psalm, if we turn to Psalm 23. It's used a lot in funerals because it talks about death in it. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. You guys remember this, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, good. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's a, it's a psalm about restoring the soul. But look at the next line. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, those are the moments of suffering. Those are the moments when the world doesn't make sense. Those are the moments when you look around, it's like everybody I know is sick. Everybody I know is hurting. I'm sick and tired of all of this. My soul and the Lord restores the soul of the person that even though they walk through those shadows of death, that they find hope. They find a, a green pasture. They find still water. There's something in the American church that says, just ignore all the suffering, ignore the shadow of death, ignore walking through that valley. That's just probably because of your sin. That's probably because of something wrong with you. It's a problem with your perspective. You just need to know that in God's power, he's got this. Yes, but he doesn't tell you to ignore the suffering. Let's keep going. Uh, Psalm 31, uh, 7 through 8. Psalm 31, 7 through 8. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, 
Because why? Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet on a broad place. This is a psalm of celebration, but what is he celebrating? He's celebrating that God sees his suffering. He says, he says you, have, you have seen, you have known my distress, you have seen my affliction, and he's celebrating that you've not delivered me to my enemy. He's not celebrating that you've taken me out of my affliction or taken me out of my distress. A lot of us, we go through junk in life and we say, God, what are you doing? Why am I going through this? And this psalmist, he's discovered, this is a, a psalm of David, it looks like. Uh, David discovers that though he hasn't, like, vanquished my enemy. He didn't deliver me to my enemy. And though you saw my anguish and you saw my suffering, I praise you that, that you're still there, that you're still in control. Last, last Psalm, Psalm 42. Any, any of my uh, friends who have, you know, honestly gone through anxiety or depression, this, this is your jam right here. Psalm 42 verses two through five. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? It's like, I know what my soul needs. My soul needs God. It says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's like the only thing I find satisfaction is like the only sustenance I have is my tears. Where is your God? They're, They're taunting me. They're taunting you, God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. David is writing this Psalm in one of his bouts of depression. Most, most people who read all of David, are like the brothers struggle with the depression and they read this and he's like, the, he's finding the only comfort that he finds isn't that his tears are going away. The only comfort that he's finding right here is that he's remembering a season of leading people in the worship of God. That is that is some dark hurt. And he, he puts his hurt down in these Psalms as ways of worship. Do you know, do you know, church, that it's possible to worship God, not in spite of your suffering, not in spite of your pain, but it's possible to worship God through it. It's possible to go through dark seasons of the soul, dark nights of the soul, as one man puts it, that you go into that dark night of the soul and you come out on the other side with a deeper, richer way to worship your God than you would if you ignored it or than you, than you would if you never went into it. Okay, so I, I, feel like, I feel like some of you are thinking, okay, that's you know, Psalms, man. Like, I'm going to avoid that book for a little while. That guy needs some medicine or something. And so maybe it's just the Psalms thing that suffering happens. What, what if I told you that uh, not only is this throughout the entire Bible, not only is every major hero of the Bible you could think of right now off the top of your head uh, documented as having seasons of suffering and worshiping through that, what if I told you that your Savior, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, also dealt with suffering. Didn't ignore it. He didn't, he didn't use his God powers to flex and skip it. He could have. He went through it. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Man, I just, like I went from the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament in one flip. The whole book was skipped. John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 27. This is from the words of Jesus. Um, in my Bible, it's, it's red. He's, he's um, preparing uh, to go to the Last Supper. And he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Question mark. 
But for this purpose, I have come uh, to this. Father, glorify your name. See, as Jesus, what we see here is that as Jesus is approaching the last hours with his friends, with his disciples, and the joy is increasing in them, the weight of what is coming in the next few hours, the weight of the cross is weighing heavy on the soul of Jesus. And he says in this prayer, now, well, it's not really even a prayer, uh, it's half prayer, half, half statement, now is my soul troubled. He's saying, he's saying that like this, I'm feeling the weight of this emotion. What should I do? Like God save me? No, no, I'd rather, God, you glorify your name through this. Jesus chose the cross, chose to walk through the suffering of a soul when he had the power to avoid it because in it is the glorification of his Father and he was able to save you and I. Our salvation comes because Jesus chose suffering instead of comfort. He chose suffering instead of ignoring the human condition of pain and hurt. He chose it and he walked through it. And he said, Father, glorify your name in this. So we're going to have negative experiences. Um, we, we're going to have to deal with suffering and grief. The American church uh, in general has said, hey, ignore those feelings. Pretend you don't have them. Man up, you know, buttercup. Put on your, your well, I don't know what you have to put on. But anyway, uh, you, uh, you put that on and you, uh, you don't deal with those emotions. And, and you just stop being so sad all the time, right? And Jesus says, no, you love the Lord your God with your soul, which is to treat those as real. The moment that we try to hide those emotions we are compartmentalizing. We are, we are compromising being a one true person. But when we become true and real, we can run to the Father and say, I am angry. I am hurt. I am crushed. I am overflowing with joy. Whatever the emotion is, you can bring that to your Father because to love Him with your soul is to bring Him those emotions and to turn them loose. So what should we do now with all of these negative feelings? What, what, what can we do? Well, there, there are two passages I want to look at about that. Uh, the one is in John, John chapter 16. So if John 12 is right before the Last Supper, John 16 is right after the Last Supper. He's, kinda, he's gone through all of this moment with his disciples. And uh, I'm going to start in verse uh, 29. What's happened here is, uh, you'll probably kind of catch the the gist of this, that the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, listen, we don't understand half of what you're talking about all the time. And so Jesus says, well, one day you will. I'm going to speak plainly. And then one of the disciples are like, oh, good. Okay, great. I now understand everything. I know exactly what you're going to do. I know exactly what you want us to do. I get you. And Jesus is like, no, you really don't, but I need you to hear me anyway. And so he says in verse 29, his disciple said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus said, do you believe? <laughs> you got to love the certainty. Like, Jesus, I get you. And Jesus is like, do you though? Really? You sure there? Oh, that's so sweet. Good try, buddy. Uh, just pay attention though. Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is talking to them and they say, hey, we understand you. And Jesus says, you really don't understand me because in a minute, just like 30 minutes from now, you're all going to leave me alone. But I'm telling you this now so that you have peace later, that I knew this was coming and I'm ready for it. And that way you can know that I'm coming, that, that you can come back to me. But he says, in this world, you'll have what? 
You have tribulation. You have pressures. I don't know if this is a comfort to you or not, but the Lord has uh, uh, prophesied over them and over us that in this world we're going to have tribulation. This idea that if you're going to follow God and if you love God enough and you have enough faith, you're going to have no more problems, Jesus disagrees with that. In fact, uh, I don't usually like talk negative about any other preacher or any other uh, speaker at all. Uh, I don't usually use them by name, but but I will this one. I'll make this exception. I'll tell you why. Uh, is that the the prosperity gospel says that if you have enough faith, there will be you, you won't suffer, and your suffering is a sign that you didn't have enough faith. And so they preach that and they teach that. And Joyce Meyer, in fact, was one who would speak and teach on that. And then one day, you can Google this. One day, Joyce Meyer says, "I'm thankful for what I learned about the prosperity gospel, but this idea that." My suffering is a result of me not having enough faith. That is too far. I, am, I, I was unbalanced in my understanding of that. She used those words, that she was unbalanced in that. Why? Because she learned, just like the rest of us have learned, suffering is part of the human condition. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus, take it to the bank. The word tribulation is this idea of pressure. You ever have those moments in life where you're being squeezed from all directions, at work and at home and in your head? Everything is just squeezing you and you just feel like, I'm about to choke. The biblical word for that is tribulation. And Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have that. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Our hope isn't in our pressures. Our hope isn't in our circumstances. Our hope is in the one who's overcome that. So we're going to have that, but we have to uh, know that he's overcome that. So one thing that we need to do with our negative emotions and feelings is just understand it's part of the human condition. It's part of what we're going to, to go through. I want to quickly read a bit out of James. I want to explain a ton of it. But James never made sense to me, if I had to be honest with you. Just coming up, this whole count it pure joys when you face trials of many kinds. Give me a break, James. I'm not going to count that a joy. I can't do that. I'm not supposed to suffer. My suffering and my trial, all this pain that I'm going through, there's something wrong here. Maybe God's not coming through the way that I think he should, or maybe I've let him down in some way. But what if, what if the trials that you go through are just part of the promised tribulation, the promised suffering that you're going to deal with? What if you going through this moment now is preparing you for a moment in the future? What if others need to know that there's a way to get on the other side of that? And you're the one who's going to be talking to them and counseling them. What if your uh, situation is just meant to show this other people that though they're blowing this way out of proportion, it's not as bad as that. See, our suffering, our pain has a point. And I've always ignored this. That's why James never made sense to me. But if we develop a rich theology of our suffering and our pain and all of our negative emotions, James chapter 1 just bounces off the page. Read, read it with me. I'll read a few verses. Uh, starting in verse two, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And like the old version of me, like 10 years ago, is like, give me a break, James. Like, give me, you know, Ecclesiastes or something. This is nonsense. But it's true. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, like, I don't know why I'm going through this. You need a little wisdom? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The, we go through suffering and the lowly brother gets, gets lifted up out of the suffering. Let him, let him uh, uh, boast in his exaltation. You go through the same suffering, the rich person gets brought down a peg. Like maybe your wealth wasn't protecting you as much as you want. We celebrate that too because the suffering is showing us the truth. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls uh, and its beauty perishes, so also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is, this is what a rich theology of suffering will give you, is that you understand the junk that you're going through this moment right now, it has a purpose a purpose to benefit you, to benefit others. And at the end of going through the suffering that's been appointed to us is the crown of life. There's a, someone named uh, Barbara Taylor. I read this quote in a book and I thought it was so beautiful. Uh, I got this out of a book that I, I've been talking about a lot called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. But re- read this quote with me. It says, it says, I have learned things in the dark I could never have learned in the light things that saved my life over and over again so that there is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. As, as someone who uh, did uh, social work for years and years, and I'd sit down with people and I'd have to write home studies and listen to all of their traumatic stories and ask them, like, what, what do you learn out of this? And the, the most common phrase I heard out of people is, I wish it didn't happen, but I wouldn't change it now. The things that I've learned now as a result of that, they've benefited me and I've grown and I've used that. But the American church without a theology of suffering says run away from those things. But people who've experienced it, people who've come out on the other side said, it turns out I needed some of those things. It's the darkness sometimes that we learn these things. And so I want to close with this thought. We love the Lord our God when we do at least these three things. And there's a lot that we can, we can gather. We, we love God with our soul when we acknowledge and address our feelings and emotions, even turning them all over to God in prayer. You have feelings, you have emotions. Don't pretend that you don't. Everybody knows that you do. And don't pretend that God doesn't want you to have them. He created you with the soul. He knew what he was doing when he made you. He invites us to turn them over. Read First Peter and it says, cast your anxieties upon him. The idea, because he loves you, by the way, is how that ends. Cast your anxieties on him. The idea is uh, because Peter was a fisherman. He's like, you throw that cast net. You don't care what it lands on. You're not aiming at a specific thing. You just take all of your anxieties, all of your emotions, and you wad them up in a little ball like this net, and you just throw them on God, and you let him take care of it. We have to learn to take our sufferings to God. Most of us, myself included, my prayers are great when I'm, ha- I'm on top of the mountain. And whenever I go into emotional you know, junk, I stop praying. And it's such a backwards emotion. We're going to learn to love the Lord our God with our soul by just bringing him emotions. Men, listen, uh, I'm, a, I'm a dude too. I get it. Like we're not supposed to have emotions. That's what the world says. It's a lie. The Lord has created us with emotions and we can be honest with him about that. We love the Lord our God when we acknowledge and address those feelings. Two, we love the Lord our God when we hold onto sources of joy during seasons of suffering. Your trauma, your suffering, those momentary glimpses of sadness do not define who you are. And we live in a world that says your trauma should be your badge. Your trauma should be what you hold out in front of you. Like, I am this. I am the survivor of an addict. I am this. I carry around this mental health card. I am that you are not these things. 
What we, what we are are people who have those things, but we are not defined by those things. And when we remember that, then we can focus on our sources of joy. Yes, today I'm dealing with all of the symptoms of depression, but my hope isn't in my feelings. My hope is in my cross. And so I'm going to focus on my Jesus on his cross. And I'm going to just like, I'm going to do the hard work of getting through on this side of, of the depression or the suffering or the, the trauma, whatever you have. We love the Lord our God with our soul when we remind ourselves in the good and in the bad that our hope is not dependent on our circumstances. When, when we have a rich theology of suffering, you no longer start thinking that your circumstances are proving to you how much God loves you. Your feelings and your sense of who God is become stable. It's none of this up and down, up and down. God loves you because you got the promotion and God hates you because your friend didn't or something. God loves you because, because uh, you, you got all the green lights and now God must be mad at me or something's wrong in the world because you know, there was a fender bender on the corner of you know, Boston Avenue or nonsense. We, we, we put ourselves in this roller coaster ride when we're trying to ignore all the emotions and all the suffering. But if we learn to just release those and learn to worship God with our soul, love him with our soul, then, then our focus understands it's not the circumstances. The circumstances doesn't change who we are and who God is. It's just our circumstances. We still have to go through them. We don't pretend that they're not there. I'll leave you uh, with some homework uh, for uh, reading Psalm 66. If you just read verses 16 through 20, but Psalm 66, this, this guy, David, he, he's telling the people, he's like, listen to me. Let me tell you what the Lord did for my soul. This guy with all that depression, let me tell you what he did for my soul. When we do this right, we learn how to tell others about this God who did this thing for our soul. And it doesn't come from ignoring the soul. It comes from exploring the soul and turning over all of our suffering and all of our pain. This is how you love the Lord your God with your pasuke, with your psyche. And we're going to do this well. We're going to be honest with ourselves. We ask for help when we need help. And we continue to turn over to God all of the emotions that are in us. Let me pray and we'll watch uh, the cue together. Father, we come to you. Um, we come to you with a list of feelings and emotions. Um, some of us have had that permission for a long time to share them and to, to release them, help us to continue to do that, help us to never build that wall back up. Some of us right now, Father, are terrified that that wall may come tumbling down and who knows what emotions have been stacked up. Lord, help us to process them. Um, help us to, to see what you're trying to teach us through our emotions, to see what, what is buried deep in that darkness uh, that is true about you. Um, help us to find those treasures that, that we've been running from and we didn't even know we were running from. Father, if we need help, uh, give us the courage to ask for help, uh, to seek that out. Um, and through your sovereignty and through your grace, through the help of others and the ministry of even counselors, perhaps, um, Lord, we start to process uh, our pains and our hurts and we turn them over to you. And uh, Lord, you will help us have a good theology that will focus on you and not be so dependent on our circumstances to know where we stand with you. Father, help us to see truth where our soul, um, we've taught it to lie to us. Uh, help us to see truth instead. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.